So, hi everyone. Um, first of all, um, it's really great to be here. And I mean, I was a bit shocked and also amazed at how many people seem to be interested in quantum computing. For me, this talk is actually kind of special because it, it closes a circle. Um, the first time I was at the CCC was in 2001. And back then I was still in school and I was coming here from my small town in southwest Germany. Um, and when I arrived here, this was kind of like magic fairyland. So there were people doing all kinds of amazing things, like uh, playing with electronics, uh, picking locks. And there was one presentation as well on uh, a Tesla coil, so to say. So a physics student uh, showing around a Tesla coil that he made himself and like explaining the physics and how it worked. And this is kind of how um, I got very interested in all these kind of things in physics and finally took the decision to study that as well. So uh, today I hope that with my talk, I will be able to, to like instill in some of you also something similar, like, a, like an interest in like interesting quantum phenomena and uh, quantum computing in general. All right, so um, as I said, my talk will be about quantum computers and uh, some of the results, so I will show you a lot of results from different groups, and some of the results are from my uh, PhD thesis, which I did at uh, CA Saclay. So I want to just uh, thank all of my former colleagues and my PhD advisors for uh, their support during that work. All right, uh, so <laughs> my motive. <laughs> so that's kind of the motivation for me for, to give this talk, because as you probably all noticed, there's a lot of buzz about quantum computers in the media. So every month there's an article on Wired or on VentureBeat uh, showing the latest results from um, like groups in quantum computing and also now there was this big announcement that Google invests money in uh, building superconducting quantum computers. So there's a lot of information floating around and it all kinds of ranges between, yeah, quantum computers will like change everything for us or quantum computers are kind of hokum, they will never work probably. And what I want to do with this talk is actually to, to explain uh, what quantum computing is, why we want it, and how it works actually. So um, the outline first is to, yeah, as I said, show uh, why we want actually to build quantum computers, then uh, how to like solve some interesting problems with them, for example, cracking passwords. And afterwards, I will show you how to um, build a very simple quantum, quantum processor using superconductors, resonators, and uh, microwave signals. And finally, I will show you some of the recent progress in quantum computing. All right, let's get started. So, um, what is the history of quantum computing? Well, the beginning can be probably traced back to the 80s when physicists were already using conventional or classical computers to help them to simulate physical systems. And back then, people were asking, uh, they were seeing that uh, it is actually pretty hard to simulate a quantum system with a classical computer. Somehow, um, as, as soon as you like add a little bit of complexity to your quantum system, the classical computer is no longer able to, to kind of simulate it. And in a famous conference, 1981, uh, Richard Feynman, a physics Nobel Prize winner, um, gave a talk on exactly this subject where he discussed how to build a computer that would actually be able to simulate quantum mechanics. And this is, so to say, the birth of the, the quantum computer as a concept. So in the beginning, this was really devised to help physicists to simulate a quantum mechanical system. Um, 
If you now go one step further, and you can, of course, see that, okay, a quantum computer seems to be more powerful than a classical computer because it can simulate quantum systems, so maybe it can also help us to solve some other problems which are not of, like, uh, physical nature, but some abstract mathematical things. And amazingly, the answer to this is also yes, and now I want to show you how this, uh, how this gets done, so to say. So, to understand quantum computing, um, we first need to have a look at uh, the basics of classical computing. And this will be very useful because later on we will use a lot of concepts that I will introduce you here, so it will help you to understand how exactly quantum computers do what they do. All right. So, as you probably all know, um, <laughs> computers uh, use bits as their basic unit of information. A bit is a, a system that has two states, zero and one. And it's kind of an abstract mathematical concept, but nowadays, if you think of bits, you probably think of uh, a, wire, a voltage in a wire in a circuit. So you could say, okay, uh, the state zero of your bit um, can be defined by having a zero voltage, a zero, zero volt in comparison to like some ground um, state, and bit one would have, uh, for example, five volt. All right. To do useful things with bits, uh, we need many of them, so we put them in a so-called bit register. Uh, here the bits are um, enumerated from top to bottom, so they are n bits in this case. And if you want to write the state of the whole bit register, you can just kind of multiply them, the individual values together, and write them uh, uh, like this. And you would see that uh, for n input bits, so you would have two to the n possible states. So it's a pretty efficient way to store information. Definitely better than using Roman literals. All right, now you, of course, want to do something with your bits, so um, you need gates. And a gate is also a, an abstract concept, which um, is a function in that sense, which has uh, one or uh, several inputs and uh, one or several outputs on the other side. And now, for classical computing, there are some uh, circuits uh, which are so-called uh, universal gates. For example, the NAND gate, which you see here, which has two inputs and uh, returns a one for all the possible input states, except if the two input bits are one. And this gate is universal in the sense that you can construct any other logic gate uh, from this by using combinations and concatenations of this single gate. All right, so that's basically all we need to uh, get started solving uh, problems with our computer. Now, um, let's have a look at a fictional problem. Let's say, for example, that our um, um, beloved leader wants to uh, launch a missile. And, uh, of course, uh, not everybody should have the right to launch missiles, so we need the password. And uh, if you want to check now if the password is correct, we need somehow a function that, um, that does this for us. And this function, which is shown here and which I call fj, um, looks like this. So it has um, n inputs on the left and one single output and it returns a zero for all of the inputs except for the one that corresponds to the correct passwords. All right, so this means that we have uh, two to the n possibilities here. And if we make the input register large enough, we can have a pretty secure uh, system. All right, uh, now imagine that we want to, uh, to crack this password. And now there are several possibilities. We can, of course, try to reverse engineer the system and find out, uh, try to find out how the function f works. But now, for this talk, let's assume that the function is secure and that we cannot um, do any kind of reverse engineering. So then the only way to obtain the password is to actually brute force it. 
which means that we have to try all the possible values of the password and see if the function returns one. And if you want a computer to do this, we have to uh, teach him to do it. And for this, we use a so-called algorithm, which is basically a uh, baking recipe that the computer can follow to obtain a solution. All right, so um, our algorithm is pretty simple. We would start by setting the register state to the uh, first value, which is 0, 0, 0, 0, et cetera. Um, then calculate fi and check if, we if the function returns a 1. And actually, for a lot of cases, uh, when people choose a 0, 0, 0, 0 as their password, it does. So in this case, uh, our algorithm has terminated and we can directly return the password that we found. And for some other cases, for people that use a more secure password, we actually have to, to check the other values as well. So we go, uh, so we increment the value by one, and we go back to step two and repeat this until we find the password. All right, so now you can ask yourself, um, how efficient is this actually? Well, it's pretty easy to answer, because if we have n input states, we will probably uh, have to check the password at most, uh, the function at most, n times. So in the best case, we would check it only once, and in the average case, we would check it probably n over two times. So if we plot now the uh, number of evaluations of the function f versus the size of the search space n, we'd get a linear relationship. So, which means that if we double this, the size of the search space, we also have to double the number of uh, functional evaluations. And this is the so-called time complexity of this algorithm. And the idea behind this is that um, the, the, the cost that you have in uh, cracking this password is in calling this function f, which can be really complicated. So you really want to measure how often you have to call this function to obtain the answer you need. All right, so please keep this in mind for because we will see the graph again later in the talk. Okay, so that's all I wanted to tell you about classical computing. And now we're going to uh, have a look at quantum computing. So again, I want to go through the basics of quantum computing first. So, um, like for a classical system, in a quantum system we have also a fundamental unit of information, which is called a quantum bit or qubit, and as the name suggests, this is a quantum mechanical two-level system. Basically, it is also an abstract concept, but uh, I find it really helps if you imagine it as, a, as an atom with uh, two states, which I call here zero, and the second state one. And uh, this atom uh, this has, of course, a quantum mechanical state, which I indicate by uh, putting this uh, strange vector around the one. So whenever you see this, this symbol later in the talk, you know that uh, I'm talking about a quantum state. All right. So now one of the, the strange things about quantum systems is that uh, they can not only be in the state zero or one, but kind of in both states at the same time. So. In this case, we, we wouldn't be able to like write the, the wave function of the, the state as a, as a simple um, zero or one, but we would have to, to write it as a more complex function here, which I call psi, and which, which is kind of a sum of the state zero with some uh, amplitude a, plus uh, the state one, which has an amplitude one minus a, uh, and in addition, some phase which uh, is a complex number here and which kind of makes that we cannot only add the two states together, but we kind of can also subtract them or do more complex things with them. Um, now, this is probably pretty hard to get your head around it, so at least for me, and I find it always helps to uh, imagine this as a uh, particle wave. So, for example, here we'd have a, a particle or a wave that comes from the left, and this wave would encounter uh, like two bar a barrier with two holes in it, 
then you would have like circular waves going out from these two holes. And here in this picture, this is also like a single system, but it kind of shows like uh, strange interference effects and uh, the two waves here overlap and depending on the phase of between them, they can kind of like um, subtract or like uh, add themselves up. So I think this is a pretty good way to think about a qubit state as well. All right. Um, the second difference to classical bits is concerning concerns the measurement of quantum bits. So, um, for classical computers, I didn't uh, even mention um, how we measure them because it's really trivial. We can just um, measure the voltage of our uh, wire and then we get uh, the information if we're in the zero and the one state. But for quantum system, it's a bit more complicated because, um, in fact, whenever we measure the system, we also change its state. So. Let's assume that we have a measurement apparatus here, which is shown on the right, and we want to measure the if the, the quantum system is in the state 0 and 1 or 1. So what we do is that we switch on some kind of interaction between the two systems, and what will now happen is that we will have a so-called collapse of the wave function, where uh, the qubit state will get projected either in the state 0, with a probability that's uh, proportional to the amplitude of the state 0 and the wave function, or into the state one with the uh, complementary amplitude. So this is something that is kind of unique uh, for quantum systems and which we will encounter later again when we try to, to measure uh, the results that we obtain using our quantum processor. All right, um, like for classical bits, we also need many qubits to uh, perform useful uh, operations. So we have a quantum register and as before, we order the individual qubits from top to bottom and write the wave functions like this. And now if you want to like um, write the wave function of the whole qubit register, we just multiply the individual wave functions together like this. And so since there are a lot of parentheses there and it's kind of tedious to read, I will often like just uh, uh, put all the terms in one parent and write it like this. So when you see a state like this, you know that actually you have a multi-qubit state where each uh, individual qubit is in the state indicated by its letter. All right, um, a key resource in quantum computing is uh, um, the fact that we can have so-called uh, multi-qubit superposition states. So let's remember again, um, the two slides ago, we talked about the fact that a qubit can be in uh, the state zero and one at the same time. So now let's imagine that we prepare a qubit uh, register state where each individual qubit is in an equal superposition between the zero and one state. So this I'll show you like here, and you can see the factor 0 0.5 uh, raised to the power of one over two is just a normalization constant. So now if I want to um, obtain the wave function of the whole register, I can again just multiply the individual wave functions but now the difference is that I have kind of like a, a sum of uh, products here. So if I want to like obtain the wave function, I have to like multiply out these parentheses. And if I do that, so we do the n times. If I do that, um, I will get a quantum state which looks like this. So you can see that we have here the state 0, 0, 0, 0, et cetera. Then you have the state 0, 0, 0, 0, 1, uh, up to the state 1, 1, 1, 1, 1. So basically it means th that uh, in this register, we have all the possible states of the qubits at the same time. And uh, now this is pretty, pretty exciting and it's kind of a key resource that we can make use of when, uh, making, when using quantum computers to solve problems. All right, and yeah, often uh, since uh, 
the terms are a bit tedious to read as well. I will just omit the uh, uh, normalization when I write the state, so you will often see them like this. Okay, uh, last thing we need to learn about for uh, quantum computing is uh, quantum gates. Um, like classical gates, quantum gates uh, take a number of input qubits and produce a number of output qubits. Um, the difference is though that uh, now since we have a quantum mechanical system, the quantum gate also needs to perform a quantum mechanical operation. And this means that some things which are um, possible in classical computing are no longer possi possible in quantum computing. Most notably uh, copying qubits, for example. But still, um, like for classical computers, there also exists the, the concept of a universal gate, uh, which means that we can find a set of gates that will allow us to um, to realize any classical gate operation with a quantum computer. Okay, uh, now if we combine uh, what we have learned about uh, multi-qubit superpositions and quantum gates, um, we can, can see that if we apply uh, our quantum gates to an input state, which is a superposition of all the possible inputs, then we'll get an output state, which contains a product of the input state multiplied by uh, the value of the function that we want to calculate for all these input states once. So this is kind of magical because it means that we have evaluated this quantum function only once, but we have calculated its value for all the possible input values. So when people tell you that quantum computers harness the power of the multiverse, then this is what they usually mean, so-called so quantum parallelism. All right, uh, the last thing uh, that we need to learn about is uh, quantum entanglement. And this is a concept which can be understood uh, like this. So assume that we have a two-qubit state uh, where the first qubit is in the state zero, and the second qubit is in the state one. And then we take uh, these two qubits and we apply some function to them, which we call f here again. Now the effect of this function is to, uh, for this input state here, which we have, to return an, an output state which looks like this. So it's a superposition between the uh, zero one state and the one zero state. And now this state looks pretty innocuous, but actually it's uh, kind of weird because as you might notice, uh, we can no longer write the uh, individual qubits uh, separately. So we can no longer like uh, factor out uh, the, the first qubit and the second qubit. So somehow both of them are kind of, kind of intertwined. And now if we would imagine that we can would make a measurement of the first qubit, um, as we said before, the probability of obtaining either the, the value zero or one for the first qubit is 50%. So assume we, we obtain a one. And uh, what is then, then really bizarre is that we seem also to have changed uh, the state of the second qubit because now it's in the state zero. So this is kind of, kind of really weird and uh, um, means that somehow there is a like like ghostly interactions between the two qubit, which makes that when I measure the first qubit or do something with it, it also affects the state of the second qubit. And now, if you think that's weird, then you're in good company because um, Albert Einstein wrote a famous paper on this uh, uh, so-called uh, um, EPR paradox, uh, where he argued uh, that uh, this must be a reason why quantum mechanics is incomplete. And in fact, this is actually, uh, it's completely valid behavior and we can use this also to speed up computations when we uh, use a quantum computer to solve problems. All right, so this was a lot of, my, a lot of stuff to, to digest. Uh, so just uh, do a small, let's do a small recap of what we learned. So we saw that uh, qubits are uh, quantum mechanical two-level systems 
that it can be in a superposition between the states 0 and 1, that a measurement of a qubit state will either 0 or 1 and project a qubit in the respective state, and that qubits can become entangled with other qubits. All right. <laughs> so, back to business. We still have to uh, find the password for, uh, for our missile launch system. Now, um, let's imagine that we have a, a blueprint of the, the function that calculates the passwords and we are able to uh, implement a quantum version of it. Um, if we can do that, then we can, like before, uh, produce a superposition of input states, calculate uh, the function operator fj, and then obtain uh, the values of the password hashing function for all possible input states. And amazingly, of course, there will also be the value of the correct password in there. So now we have kind of uh, almost solved our problem because we have calculated all the, the possible outcomes of the password hashing function. We have identified the state which contains the right password. Now, the only thing that remains to be done is to get this state out of there. And uh, now what we could do for this is just to um, try to measure the values of the qubit after applying the operator. But since I told you that uh, um, a measurement will uh, kind of change the qubit state and project it into uh, one of the, an, an arbitrary state of the, the superposition state that we have, the probability that we'll actually measure the correct state here is only one over n. Whereas the probability that we will get some other state, which is not the solution to our problem, is uh, 1 minus 1 over 1. So um, that's pretty bad news, actually. And this is kind of the um, dilemma of quantum mechanics or quantum computing. Because you are able to evaluate a function for all possible input states at once, but you're not able to uh, extract that information from the quantum state. So what can we do? Um, actually, there's a solution for this. It's a so-called uh, Grover algorithm, which was invented or discovered by Love Grover in 1996. And it gives us a way to extract the information from the quantum system. And the algorithm does that by applying a pretty complicated uh, uh, sequence of gates to the output state that we obtain after applying it to the function, and then repeating this uh, square root of, an, of n times. So after doing this, we can then... Up, perform a measurement, and what the, the algorithm has done is to, to transfer all the amplitude to the state which corresponds to the solution of our search problem. So when we now make a measurement, we will have a probability of almost 100% to obtain the correct answer, which of course is great. All right, um, now if you have a look at the efficiency of this, uh, we can uh, visualize this for um, the case, for example, of 10 qubits. So for 10 qubits, the search space of our passwords is uh, uh, 1024, and uh, we can now plot the probability of obtaining the correct solution after applying the Grover operator a number of times. And as you can see, in the beginning, uh, the success probability is quite low, so it's less than 0.1%, but as we keep applying this Grover operation uh, operator, the probability goes up, 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 until it reaches almost 100% at uh, after 25 iterations. And this is pretty great because it means that we have to evaluate our search function not 1,024 times, but only 24 times to obtain the correct solution. So if we go back to the graph from before, where we have plotted the time complexity of our classical algorithm, we can now compare that to the uh, quantum algorithm. And we can see that uh, the quantum algorithm is actually much faster for this kind of problem because it only needs a square root of n uh, attempts or evaluations of the function to, um, to find the correct solution. And 
So when people tell you that quantum computers are faster than classical computers, what they actually mean is that uh, for some problems, uh, quantum there exist algorithms on quantum computers that have a, a smaller time complexity than the best known algorithms for classical computers. And the difference between the classical algorithm and the qu uh, quantum algorithm is the so-called uh, quantum speedup. In this case, it would be so. It would be a quadratic speedup, as you can see. And now, um, I, sh I use this example because it's pretty um, easy to explain, and it's also uh, something where we can prove that there is no better classical algorithm. But most of you probably know quantum computing more from uh, code breaking or from so-called Shor algorithm, because um, most uh, classical uh, asymmetric. Uh, Crypto, cryptological uh, methods are based today on uh, the fact that it's pretty easy to uh, obtain a number by multiplying two large prime numbers together, but it's pretty difficult, on the other hand, to obtain the individual prime factors of that number uh, from the multiplied one. So the best classical algorithm uh, for this problem is kind of sub-exponential and looks like this. Whereas for a quantum computer, we have an algorithm, so-called Shor algorithm, which can, which can solve the problem in uh, logarithmic n to the raised to the power of three time. And this uh, is actually a pretty big difference because it can make, um, it can change the runtime of such an algorithms from millions of years to a few hours. So, but contrary to the, to the search problem that I showed you before, there's actually no, or to my knowledge, there's no proof that for a classical computer there doesn't exist a better algorithm. So here we cannot really say that quantum computers will always be faster than classical computers because we really don't know if we can find a better, better algorithm for a classical computer that could solve this problem faster. Okay, so... <laughs> Sorry if this was a bit theoretical, so I promise no more uh, equations in this talk. And now I want to, uh, to show you how you can actually build a quantum processor. And, well, there are actually many different answers to this uh, question. And uh, I talked before about uh, qubits as kind of atoms, and that's a good analogy because there are actually people or research groups that uh, are using atoms that they trap in an electromagnetic trap, which is shown here and use them as qubits. So this uh, photo here is from a, a research group in Innsbruck, and what they do is that they uh, trap uh, a number of ions in a so-called power trap, and they can put these ions uh, inside there like a string, uh, pearls on a string, and then manipulate them using laser light. And since the atoms are also coupled to each other using, uh, by the vibration mode of the whole system, you can perform quantum gates between individual ions. And so this is a pretty uh, successful and pretty nice way to perform quantum computing. And the largest system that, uh, that are built today with this kind of approach encompass about uh, 50 to even 100 qubits. Uh. All right, so uh, what I want to talk about today, though, uh, are superconducting quantum processors, like the one I show here, which is from the University of Santa Barbara, uh, from the research group which just announced the collaboration with Google to build quantum processors. So, um, as I said, these, um, um, these quantum processes are realized uh, using uh, thin layers of superconductors on microchips. And for those of you who don't know what a superconductor is, it's basically a metal, or in most cases a metal, that loses all of its re electric resistance at a very low temperature, and which at that temperature also uh, exhibits quantum mechanical behavior. And uh, superconducting quantum bits are quite attractive because uh, the reasoning is here that uh, if you manage to build a few of them and you uh, manage to make them really good, it would be really easy to scale the number of qubits to a very large 
uh, large amount because you can just fabricate them like we fabricate most of the microchips today. So, and of course there are many more technologies that allow uh, to build quantum processes, for example, there are nuclear magnetic resonance spins, there are quantum dots, uh, even Bose-Einstein condensates can be used to uh, realize quantum bits. So um, I just want you to, to take away that uh, superconducting quantum processors and iron trap quantum processors are not the only approaches to quantum computing. All right, um, now I want to briefly talk about uh, a very simple uh, two-qubit uh, quantum processor I uh, built during my PhD thesis. And this processor uses so-called transmon qubits, which are uh, an invention of uh, a research group in Yale from 2004. And what I show you here is an electron uh, microscope image of the whole uh, qubit chip. And this is actually a nice system to um, discuss the basic blocks of uh, quantum processes because it contains all the elements that you would also need for a larger scale quantum processor. So you can see that the chip is about uh, 20 millimeters in size and uh, it's realized in a material called niobium, which is a metal that also becomes superconducting about, at about minus 264 degrees. And on the chip you see a lot of uh, coplanar waveguides, uh, which we can use to send microwaves to the qubits, and some other signal lines which we can use to, to perform other operations with them. And so if you ask yourself where the qubits are actually on the chip, uh, the answer is here in the center. So you can see two of them, and in the zoom in, you can actually see, uh, well, you can, probably can't see it very well here because the contrast is not very high, but uh, it's a large capacitor that is realized in aluminum, which also is a superconductor, and which, uh, which basically uh, yeah, acts uh, as a support for our qubit. And the qubit itself is then uh, on the top of this capacitor, and it's so-called Josephson junction, which basically um, is just a assists an element that consists of two thin layers of superconductor separated by an insulating barrier. And it's what we call a, um, a bad contact because uh, under normal conditions there couldn't be any current flowing through the system, but uh, when the system becomes superconducting, we have a um, superconducting wave function and uh, the wave function can somehow tunnel through the barrier and there can be a supercurrent flowing between the two sides of the structure. And now the, um, the qubit uh, itself is realized as different states of this system here, which we call also an artificial atom, because it kind of has a ground state and a few excited states that we can, um, can uh, control using microwaves, actually. So the difference is here that the frequency of the, the qubit is, uh, compared to an atom, much lower and in the range of a few gigahertz. All right, um, yes, the phase difference. And as I said, we can, sorry for the cheesy animation, we can uh, <laughs> manipulate the qubits using uh, microwave signals, which we send to them through uh, this uh, snake-like structure, which in fact is a coplanar waveguide resonator. Um, you can think of this probably as a, as a guitar string, which uh, when we like excite it, would uh, vibrate at its own eigenfrequency. And uh, the um, function of this resonator here in the qubit uh, chip is actually twofold. On one hand, it isolates the qubit from the environment and protects it from the noise that is, for example, coming from the input line. And on the other hand, it also allows us to measure the state of the qubit after we have performed some operations on it. All right, um, now I talked about uh, two qubit gates earlier. So um, in order to do them, we need some kind of interaction between the two qubits. And what we do for that is that we uh, put a very small capacitor between them, which kind of couples them uh, always when they are at the same frequency. So 
That means by changing the frequencies of the qubits, which we can do by changing the current in these, these lines here, we can bring them in, in and out of resonance and realize uh, uh, two qubit gate operations with them. All right, so that's basically it. Um, now to operate this chip, we first um, glue it to a special microwave PCB, uh, which also contains coplanar waveguides that we can hook up to our equipment. Then we take this whole thing and uh, mount it in a sample holder, whose main function is to also protect the qubits from any stray electromagnetic fields and also to anchor it to the uh, dilution cryostat. The dilution cryostat is basically shown here, so the sample holder gets attached to the bottom of that, and what this thing is, is basically just a very fancy refrigerator, which cools down the qubit to about 20 millik, which is at minus 274 degrees Celsius, just yeah, slightly above absolute zero. And we have to do this because, um, on one hand, uh, the superconductors wouldn't be superconducting if we were at room temperature, and on the other hand, uh, if we would operate our qubits at room temperature, we would uh, find that the thermal uh, noise and uh, thermal excitations of all the materials that are around the qubits would destroy the quantum state of them really fast. So we really, really need to cool them down to a very low temperature to be able to, to operate them for a sufficiently long time. All right, um, so that's the short version of how to build a quantum processor. The long version takes about two years and lots of uh, microwave calibrations and uh, uh, chases for superconducting leaks and, cell and stuff. So um, what I want to show you here are just the results of uh, one of the experiments we ran with this two-qubit processor. And what we basically did here is to, um, to run the Grover search algorithm, which I showed to you uh, earlier, for the case of two qubits. So it's really not a practical problem uh, that you want to solve, but it kind of demonstrates all the abilities that you need to build a large-scale quantum computer, because it contains single qubit gates here, for example, for which we use to create the input superposition state, and it also contains uh, multi-qubit gates. For example, here we have the uh, so-called I-swap gate and two uh, single qubit rotations, which together implement the uh, function fj that we talked about earlier. And in this case, uh, the function fj uh, marks the state 00, 0 as the password, or as the solution of our problem. All right, uh, now for the two-qubit case, the, the Grover operator has to be applied only once to the state to obtain the solution, so uh, these two gate operations there do this, and afterwards we can just then measure the qubit state and see if the, uh, the algorithm has worked, so to say. Now, um, you can see the pulse sequence of this gate operation here. Um, what you see there is actually the time on the x-axis and on the y-axis, the amplitudes of the microwave signals that we, show, what, that we uh, sent to the qubits, which we show in green, as well as the uh, frequency uh, changes of the qubits, which we show in red. So you can see here that in the beginning we have the two microwave pulses that they create a superposition, then we have like an interaction between the two qubits where we perform our two-qubit gate, then we separate them again, perform some uh, more phase manipulations, then we bring them in resonance again for the Grover operator, and finally we change their frequency and we measure out their state. All right, so now if we want to um, see how successful we are actually at doing this, we can um, run this gate sequence, which um, takes about 200 nanoseconds, and uh, ever do that a lot of times, and then just average the results to obtain some good statistics. And we have done this for the case of this function f00, and what we see here is the success probability, so to say, or the probability to obtain different output states as a function of the, 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 the search function that we are looking for. 
And you can see here that for this case of the functions f0, 0, the success probability is about 67%, which is um, less than 100% what we would expect, and I will explain to you uh, why later. So, to be uh, more scientific, we have to uh, repeat that, not only for this uh, case of the function f0, 0, but also for the other possible search functions. So we do that, and we, every time we calculate the success probability afterwards, and we see that for all the four cases, we are above uh, 52%, uh, or 50%, sorry. And this is pretty nice, because uh, 50% is the uh, so-called classical benchmark against which we can compare our quantum processor. Because if you would think of an algorithm, a classical one, um, that gives you a solution to your four uh, two-bit search problem, then you could think of an algorithm that like evaluates this function once, which um, has a probability of 25% of yielding the right answer, and if it doesn't find the right answer, just takes a lucky guess and uh, returns some of the other remaining three states. And so this is what I call here the I'm feeling lucky bonus, because the success probability of this classical algorithm would then be 50%, and this is what we measure our quantum processor against. So you can see that for this simple case, we can actually achieve quantum speed-up in uh, an experimental quantum processor. All right, so now you probably ask yourself, why can't we just scale that up and uh, build a quantum processor with like uh, a thousand or 10,000 qubits? And actually, there are several problems which keep, you, keep us from doing that, and a few of them uh, I listed here. So the biggest one for the quantum processor, which um, I realized during my, during my PhD, is uh, so-called decoherence. And Decoherence means that um, basically we, the qubit is not only manipulated and measured by our own signals, but also by uh, other quantum systems which are in the vicinity of the qubits, for example, on the uh, chip itself or in the uh, dilution cryostat. And these quantum system, systems um, manipulate the qubit state and also perform a measurement on it. And uh, as we've learned before, a measurement uh, destroys the quantum state. So what this does is basically it uh, kills the state of our qubit in a, a pretty short amount of time. For the processor, which I realized this was on the order of a few hundred nanoseconds. Um, okay, then uh, the second problem is the gate fidelity and the qubit-qubit coupling. Um, for the case of two qubits, it's actually pretty easy to devise a coupling scheme where you can perform gates between each uh, between the different qubits. But now, as you would, if you would scale up the number of qubits, you would see that it's pretty difficult to switch on and off the interaction between two individual qubits with high fidelity. It's kind of like if you have like a phone line with a certain frequency bandwidth, and you want to have, for example, 100 or 1,000 subscriber on it. And uh, if every subscriber takes some amount of the bandwidth of the line, at some point you will have no bandwidth left for new subscribers. And this is kind of what happens with the qubits here. We, at a certain point, we have um, used all our frequencies that are available for the qubits, and we can no longer add new qubits without uh, kind of interfering with the other ones. So the same goes also for measuring the qubit state, because in our case, um, we can perform a measurement of the qubit and uh, get the correct result with a probability of about 90%, but this means, of course, that in 10% of the cases, we cannot reliably measure the state of the qubit, which is also, for this kind of a system, a big problem. All right, and uh, of course, there are some other problems which I won't talk in detail here, which, for example, concern the reset of the qubit. So for quantum computers, it's actually pretty hard to, to reset the state of your machine to zero. And uh, this is also like a problem which, which has to be solved and which is not uh, fully solved in practice yet. Okay, um, so I want to finish this talk with a, a small outlook on or a small summary of the recent trends in superconducting quantum computing.
Um, now, to, there are several groups uh, in the world that are trying to improve the, the state of quantum processors and uh, uh, help to really build a large-scale quantum, quantum computer. And here I show you an image of the uh, research group at the University of Santa Barbara in the John Martinez lab, which recently partnered up with Google to build uh, quantum processors. And what they are doing is basically to uh, devise new types of architectures that also use transmon qubits, like the ones I showed you before, and resonators, but that couple these elements in different ways that makes it easier to produce a large number of qubits on the same chip and actually get, uh, get a real um, quantum computer out of that. So these approaches are, for example, called RESQ or surface code architecture. Okay, then uh, you can as well think about uh, improving uh, the qubits, uh, qubits themselves and the resonators, and uh, uh, some groups, for example, in Yale and uh, in, in Delft and in other places around the world, are doing this by replacing these coplanar waveguide resonators that you see here on the left by uh, actual 3D resonators, which are boxes of aluminium that, that can also resonate at microwave frequencies. So here, for example, we see a system that has a, uh, a 3D cavity resonator with two qubits, uh, which are placed on a sapphire substrate. And the advantage of this is that you can uh, control the environment and the fabrication parameters of the qubit to a much better degree than you would be able uh, to do with normal uh, microchips. So the coherence times and uh, um, the lifetimes of the resonator, or the quality factor of the resonator in this case is much better than for, the, uh, for these so-called uh, like 2D qubits. All right. Uh, another thing which some groups are working on is uh, so-called quantum error correction, because um, you cannot only say, okay, uh, let's build better qubits, but you can also say, uh, let's work with bad qubits, but uh, devise algorithms that can help us to correct errors if they occur. And amazingly, this is actually possible, even with quantum bits, uh, and there are several approaches uh, where um, groups uh, devise quantum uh, processors that can, to some degree, uh, correct errors and like keep the quantum state of the qubits alive for an indefinite amount of time. Although the research which are obtained here, uh, for example, in the Yale group, are not yet at this point. All right, the last thing um, is then to instead, um, instead of using a normal solid state or superconducting qubits to use different quantum systems to, to store or process uh, quantum information. So here, for example, I show you work from the uh, group in Seclay, um, which is a hybrid quantum system that uses a uh, diamond with so-called NV senders, which are uh, nitrogen vacancy um, senders in, in diamond, which actually are responsible for the color of this, uh, this diamond and which uh, amazingly can store uh, quantum information. So what we do with the system is that we have a qubit and uh, uh, when you want to manipulate the state of the qubit, you uh, keep the state on the, the chip, but if you want to store it, you can transfer it to the, um, to the NV center in the diamond and uh, keep it there for a long time without uh, having any interference or any decoherence in the qubit state. All right, so as you can see, there's a lot of research going on in this domain, and uh, um, you could actually plot kind of a Morse law for uh, quantum uh, computers or superconducting quantum computers. And if you do that, you would see that uh, when, we st when the research started on this uh, subject in 1999, uh, the qubits that we had at the time had a coherence time of less than one nanoseconds. So they were really, really primitive by today's standards. And uh, 
In the, recent, in the following years, in 2002 and 2004, there were new types of qubits devised, which had a much longer coherence time, and actually this trend of increasing the coherence time of the qubit seems to go on uh, at a similar or like a pretty fast rate uh, until today. So in 2013, we have actually superconducting qubits that have coherence times in the order of uh, a few hundred microseconds, which is large enough to envision to actually use these qubits for, for real quantum uh, computing. So, the takeaway here is probably that uh, quantum computers are coming, <laughs> but there's still, of course, many, many engineering challenges that we have to overcome. And maybe to end this talk in a slightly political way, uh, the bad news is that probably the quantum computers will come uh, to the hands of all the wrong people, because right now it's mostly the research in quantum computing is mostly funded by governments and big corporations, so um, this technology, when it will become available, will definitely not be uh, available in like a democratic uh, fashion to everybody. So, all right, um, that's basically all I wanted to, to say. Uh, I just wanted to point out that if you're interested in uh, quantum computing and hybrid quantum systems, there's a talk on it tomorrow. Diamonds are a quantum computer's best friend, which is at uh, 12.45 in Hall 6 by Nicholas Wuerl. Okay, so with that, um, I thank you and uh, I'm open for questions. Thank you for your talk. We now have 15 luxurious minutes of Q&A. So please line up at the mics. There's six mics, one, two, three, four, five, and six in the back. Um, we also have the IRC and Twitter, as I said before. If you're physically unable to move, as in not just caffeine deprived, but actually not able to stand up, then please raise your hands. We have a backup mic for you. Okay, mic one, go ahead. Uh, hello, uh, thanks for the very interesting talk. I've, I've learned a lot. Uh, Into the I, mic. Oh, sorry. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for the very interesting talk. I've learned a lot. Um, and if I understand it correctly, uh, quantum computing is at the moment limited, limited by the amount of qubits you can have interact with each other, plus the amount you can keep the qubit stable. Um, do you have any idea uh, at what amount of time and what amount of qubits um, quantum computing can um, uh, reach a level where it can actually compete with normal computing in, mm -hmm. say, uh, doing RSA ca calculations, etc.? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question, and uh, um, the answer to that is a bit complicated. But in fact, what you want to, to achieve with quantum qubits is uh, the so-called uh, error threshold. Because as I talked about, there's a poss the possibility to perform error correction with qubits. So if you are below a certain level of errors for each individual operation that you perform on a qubit, you can basically correct that away and have a system that works perfectly under, um, under our conditions. So, and for um, classical approaches, or like the traditional approaches to quantum gate uh, computing, this error threshold was pretty low at the order of uh, like a few fractions of a percent. But with new approaches, like for example the surface uh, surface coding approach, this uh, error threshold has actually moved up quite a bit to a few percent. So today it would actually be invisible to uh, to have qubits that are good enough to to build real large-scale quantum computers. Although, as I pointed out, there are still a lot of other challenges challenges which keep us from doing that. Okay. Does that thanks. answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Okay. Thanks. Does the internet have a question? Yes, there are uh, two questions. 
Mm -hmm. uh, the first question is, in your example, we got the right answer with a probability close to one by applying Grover's algorithm. Mm -hmm. um, is this true for other al uh, quantum algorithms also? Um, so there's a small probability of getting wrong results? Uh, for most quantum algorithms, yes, this is the case because um, most of them are so-called probabilistic algorithms which uh, give you the right answer to a problem with a certain probability that is close to 100% but not necessarily 100%. So in this case, it could be the, ca the case that we get the wrong answer in which, um, in which case we just have to, to like repeat the process and check again a, a couple of times. So, yeah. And I mean, there are a lot of quantum algorithms, and I don't know them all, so there might be some which are more deterministic in that sense, but to my knowledge, most of the quantum algorithms are probabilistic by nature. Number six, that's you. Um, hi, thank you very much for your talk. Um, I have a pretty layman question. Um, conventional computing units, in order to make them better, you either um, increase the density, get more bits, right? Mm -hmm or you um, make them faster, or you alter the uh, instruction set in some way. Which of these are uh, feasible for quantum computing? I mean, you mm -hmm. answered a bit with the... Uh, I, I probably mm -hmm. can answer that. So, um, I think today um, the biggest challenge in quantum computing is not like uh, having higher packing densities of qubits on a chip. So I think it's really more um, having the ability to even like produce a, a large number of qubits regardless of the of the size of the structure. So I think in that sense we wouldn't it wouldn't be um, like a very high priority to optimize the the, the packing or like yeah, the size of the, the individual qubits on the the chip. And uh, yeah, I think it's more about if you talk about like the performance, you can also of course course try to decrease the the amount of time you need to, for example, perform quantum uh, gates. And this can be done by yeah, increasing the, the frequency of the qubits and also increasing the coupling between individual qubits, which will though uh, also increase the errors because there will also be errors incurred when you like bring the qubits in and out of coupling. So it's always like a compromise between speed and uh, uh, reliability or fidelity, so to say. Thank Does you. that answer your question? Yeah, yeah thank mm -hmm. you very okay. much. Okay, we have a question from a camera angel. Yes. Thank you. What do you think about linear uh, approaches for quantum computing based on linear optics? So, in principle, the photon is a pretty nice mm -hmm. unit because it's basically free from decoherence. And there are a lot of approaches since uh, 2002 with free space optics, and now they are being integrated into one chip. And what do you think about these approaches? Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, a, not an expert in optical quantum computing, so I, I don't want to comment on that. Uh, too much, but I mean, as I said before, there are many approaches to quantum computing, and as of today, the race is still open on who will build the first working quantum computers. And if I would have to bet, I would bet either on like uh, iron trap quantum computers we saw before, or like superconducting qubits. But of course, the, the optical systems and photonic qubits are also very interesting, and they could prove to be a viable alternative in case we should meet like a roadblock with either superconducting qubits or another technology. So I think it's, yeah, every technology that can realize qubits is worth checking out and uh, then you have to like measure it against like different criteria, for example, how, far, how easy is it to like make a large number of qubits, how easy is, is it to couple qubits with each other and how good is the fidelity when you uh, realize individual qubit operations. So these are really the criteria that you want to measure against, I think. Yeah, maybe we can chat about this later. Mm, sure, yeah, would love to, yeah. Number two, please. Uh, hi. Um, mm -hmm. 
When you have your interference problem with the, with mm -hmm. the frequencies, isn't this a question of using a more complicated probability space? Maybe you can um, get around that. Okay, what uh, problem are you referring to? Uh, when you have, a, you have a scaling problem, if you add a lot of qubits and you don't ah, okay. have enough frequencies for them? Yes. Okay, now I see, yeah. Uh, I mean, the problem with our qubit processor was that the coupling scheme was really very simple. As I, okay. as I showed, it was just a capacitor that coupled the qubits to each other whenever they were at the same frequencies. And these architectures, for example, the one here at the University of Santa Barbara, use more um, intricate coupling schemes that rely on like uh, different qubits being isolated from each other by multiple uh, resonators. So the coupling factor um, or like the, the coupling strength in these approaches goes uh, down much faster when you change the frequencies of the qubits than in our case. So these approaches are kind of more reliable and yeah, better suited to like realize a large number of qubits, I would say. So there are yeah, definitely lots, lots and lots of approaches that you can, can, uh, can try to, yeah, to do. Why don't people use better superconductors? Because we can do much better than 20 MK by now. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the, the temperature is really not, uh, not uh, uh, the worst problem that we have. And yeah. we operate at low temperatures mostly because uh, we want to uh, avoid the thermal Step excitation the, of the qubit yeah. and like noise. And like changing the material of the superconductor would be possible, but it would also be very complicated because uh, for those materials I showed you, aluminium and niobium, there are actually very good fabrication processes in place which have been optimized for like 10, 20 years. And if you would take a new material, it would be probably quite tricky to get like a, a, a film of the same quality and uh, yeah. Gotcha. All right, cool. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, internet please. Um, how many qubits would be necessary to crack a 2048-bit RSA key? Ooh. <laughs> That's a really good question and uh, I don't want to lie to, the, uh, to you now, but uh, I mean, to my knowledge, the number of qubits that you need to solve this problem goes linear with the problem size, so you would also need of the order of 2000, 2000 something bits there. So as, as many bits at least as, as you have bits in the number that you want to crack. But this could of course vary by a factor, by a constant factor of two or three, depending on how many more bits you need for things like error correction and other stuff. So, but I would have to really, I can look it up in the, in the, in the Shor algorithm to give you an exact answer on this. Number five. Hello. Mm -hmm. Hello. Um, I, I was wondering, the, the talk seemed like the, the direction of the research is how we can use quantum computers, how to solve the problems that we have with normal computers today. Um, but the, but the, the thing that uh, white crypto is doing usually is to create problems that are hard to solve. Is there research in that direction too? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, uh, the basic uh, thing about quantum computing is that, with the, as I said, with the quantum computers, we are able to solve some of the hard problems that we use for cryptography today uh, much faster than with the classical computers. So this kind of eliminates the security we have in these methods and uh, there is some a lot of research actually on, on post-quantum cryptography. I mean, I think there was a talk here on that as well, but I'm really not an expert in that subject and I, I wouldn't uh, like comment on that now. So, but yeah, definitely there's a lot of, uh, a lot of going on. Also when it com comes to like quantum cryptography itself. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Number four. Hi. Um, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on uh, in the future in a world where a lot of these hurdles have been removed, where we mm -hmm. have quantum computers that can work with meaningful numbers of qubits and mm -hmm. relatively widespread access to this technology. 
what do you think um, you know, some of the most promising uh, applications of this technology would be? So for me personally, um, I don't think that cracking passwords or reading people's email is like the, the thing where we should build quantum computers. Right. Uh, for me, it's mostly the ability to simulate quantum systems. Because if you, even if you look today at uh, conventional electronics, um, for example, a processor, you would see that uh, the size of individual transistors comes uh, down uh, really fast and approaches the limit where we actually have a transistor that would consist only of a few atoms. So such a system would, would uh, by definition, um, have quantum mechanical behavior. And if you want to understand and simulate these systems, we will definitely need quantum computers to do that. And also there are many other applications, for example, protein folding and like uh, biology, genetics, etc., which would require profit uh, from this kind of computers. So it's, for me, it's really not about cracking codes, but about like doing science with that. Yeah, thank you. Number one. Mm -hmm. One, one. Oh, thank you. Uh, what I would like to know is um, you've, you've, in the popular press, I've always heard that uh, scaling to a larger number of bits is, mm -hmm. uh, is hard. And I, I assumed that this was because when you get too big, they, they don't uh, interfere with each other anymore. Mm -hmm. um, today, I'm taking away that um, the the errors, the, the, the noise is a big problem, and that the retention is a big problem. Um, and in the beginning, you mentioned that the iron trap has up to 100 uh, qubits already. Yes. Can, you, can you say more about this iron trap thing and, and what its parameters are and, mm -hmm. and why you're going in this way if the other one is already so mm -hmm. far? So, um, yeah, as I said, I'm not an expert on iron trap quantum computing, but uh, the qubits uh, which they have there are uh, really of very good quality because the uh, coherence time can be in the range of seconds and uh, the speed of operation can also be comparable to that of superconducting qubits. So you can have gates which operate in like nanoseconds or microseconds and you can also have a, a readout fidelity. So, um, the, so to say the success probability when you read out the given qubit state which approaches like 100% uh, by uh, like several, like yeah, six digits or so. So um, these systems definitely seem to be very promising. Um, what kind of uh, could be a problem is probably the scaling because um, if you go to a very large number of qubits you would have to somehow accommodate them inside a trap, uh, inside an electromagnetic trap which would, which could be tricky. But also for this problem there are solutions devised today, for example you have like uh, atom traps which are on a ship. Uh, so you can really take individual qubits or atoms or ions, if you like, like and shuffle them around on the chip and transport them to, to, to other, other sites and like that, like isolate them from each other. So um, as I said, for me, the race is completely open. And uh, right now, ion trap computing seems to be ahead. But this could change, of course, if we keep improving the superconducting qubits uh, like we did in the last 10 years. So mm -hmm. Number, six. Mm -hmm. Number six. Hey, um, as you told, at the moment we still use the binary system with two-level systems, mm -hmm. but we are not. Um, we can use higher-level systems. Are there mm -hmm. any thought experiments to uh, overcome the binary system with higher-level systems? Um, yeah, you could of course do that, and uh, in fact, uh, um, we did experiments where we used also the, the second and the third uh, energy state of the qubit to have like a like a higher-order base for our calculations. Um, but this is usually not done because uh, this, the, the speed up or like the, the gain in information that you, you, that you achieve there is not exponential. 
So you could say that if you have, for example, a quantum system with three states, you would have a state space which is three to the power of n for n qubits, whereas for the two qubit state, it would be two to the power of n. So it's still a big difference, but it's not going like, like it's not the number that, that we change is not in the exponent, so to say. So um, that's kind of, why, that kind of why most people don't do it. Okay. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Okay, we are out of time. I'm very sorry, but I'm mm -hmm. sure you can find Andreas yes, outside definitely. later. Thank you Thanks. again, please. Oh, we have still doing.